morning, City Church. If you have a Bible with you this morning, turn with me in it to the 23rd Psalm. 23rd Psalm. We started a new series last week called uh, Fear No Evil because we're a culture that is in desperate need of some hope. And everywhere you turn, it seems like all of the news around us is bad news. In fact, in fact, here's a, here are some of the headlines from one of the newspapers that I subscribe to. This is just Friday. This is just a Friday headlines. Here's one. Staggered U.S. braces for more infections as death toll rises above 7,000. Here's another one. Decade of job growth comes to an end, undone by pandemic. Here's another one. The virus comes for democracy. It's time to make your own face mask. How fast the outbreak is growing in hundreds of communities. Those are, just the, those are just the headlines from Friday. The thing is, though, you don't, have to, you don't have to be reading a newspaper or watching the news on television to get a sense of how fearful we are as a culture right now. It's all that anybody's talking about. Like, where are we at? Are we flattening the curve? We're two weeks out from our peak. Where's the stock market? Is it up? Is it down? It's like it's like the fear that we feel in our culture is palpable. It's almost, like we're, it's almost like we're vibrating as a culture. And it's hard, to feel, it's hard to feel peace when all of the news around you is ominous. And the 23rd Psalm was written uh, really for a crisis just like this. It was written to bring comfort to your soul. And it's done that for people all throughout history. In fact, the thing that's so beautiful about the 23rd Psalm is just the way it's, it's written. It even brings, just as you read it, it seems like it's, it brings a certain amount of peace to your soul, just the rhythms of it. Let's read it together. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures, he leads me beside quiet waters, he refreshes my soul. He guides me along the right paths. For his name's sake, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me, and you prepare a table before me. In the presence of my enemies, you anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely, your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. You can almost just feel all of the anxiety reducing just from reading that psalm. You know, the thing that I have to be careful about with a psalm like this one, with a passage like this one, Psalm 23, is I have to be careful as a, as a preacher that I don't exegete the beauty out of this psalm. I think you could do that sometimes. I think you could pick a masterful piece of literature apart like this one. I think you could pick it apart to the point that you lose the beauty of the whole thing. My kids would tell you, my kids would tell you that I did that to a lot of movies when they were growing up, whether, you know, when they were little watching, you know, anything from Finding Nemo to Toy Story to, you know, in their adolescence when they were watching superhero movies. If I had the remote control, I was pausing all the way through it. And I was commenting something about the meaning of the movie or the way it was, uh, the way the writers wrote the, uh, the script. And for them, it ruined it. You know, often it ruined watching a movie uh, with me doing that. I think it's possible to do that to a passage of Scripture like the 23rd Psalm. The other side of it, though, is that elsewhere in the Bible, God says that every single word of Scripture is inspired by Him. In other words, that none of these uh, words in this passage of Scripture or any other are chosen cavalierly. They all have meaning. They 
they all have purpose. I mean, think about, think about like, for instance, John 14, 6. Jesus says in John 14, 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man shall pass to the Father but through me. Change that word the to a, you've got a completely different meaning, don't you? That's what God is saying, is that every word is inspired, every word chosen for a particular purpose, and every word in this psalm chosen to bring comfort to your heart. And so on the, one hand, on the one hand, I have to make sure that I don't exegete the beauty out of this, but on the other hand, I have to make sure that I look closely enough at these words that we understand the profound meaning behind the words that God chose. So what I want to do this morning is I, I want to go back I want to go back to verse 1, and I want to just look at some of the things in verse 1 that, you know, some of which we saw last week, so some of my comments this morning will, will overlap what I talked about last week, but I want to go back and I want to look at some of the things in verse 1 that I think can bring peace to your heart during this period of time. Let's remind ourselves, though, of a couple of things that we need to keep in mind as we read this psalm. First, we said that this is a psalm of David. Who's David? Well, we remember uh, David was the king of Israel. He was, he, he, we said last week that he's a very complex man. He was capable of these soaring expressions of love for God, but he was also capable of terrible toxicity. He was an adulterer. He committed murder. He was, he was a polygamist. wasn't a particularly good father, and yet by God's own declaration, he was a man after God's own heart. Second, it's important to remember that, that we said that when David says, I will fear no evil, he's not saying that he won't ever feel fear. The word fear in this verse, well, it's a, it's a verb. David isn't saying that he won't feel fear. He's just saying that he won't be controlled by fear. And I think that's a very important distinction. The feeling of fear can be healthy. It can be constructive. But being controlled by fear isn't. Fear we said last week, if not resisted, will take over your life. Now, with that in mind, I want to go back, and I, as I said, I want, to look at, I want to look at verse 1 again. I think it's worth spending some more time on, because verse 1 is the premise upon which the promises of the rest of Psalm 23 stand. And so let's look at, let's look at verse 1 again. Uh, David says, the Lord is my shepherd, uh, I lack nothing. Some of your translations read, uh, I shall not want. And I'm just going to tell you that you know, over the years, the thing that some people have appreciated about my style of teaching and the thing that some people haven't appreciated about my style of teaching is that when I come across a statement like this that says, I lack nothing or I shall not want, I think that it's very important to challenge a statement like that, to wrestle with it honestly, because if the Bible's true, it will stand up under all of my scrutiny, but also because if the Scriptures are going to do their work on me and in me, I have to wrestle with something like that. Such an absolute statement, I lack nothing. It seems preposterous that David would say, I lack nothing. Uh, there's something an educator uh, once wrote that has always stuck with me, and it goes like this. Simplicity on this side of complexity is worthless, but simplicity on the other side of complexity is invaluable. Now, that educator wasn't writing about 
uh, the 23rd Psalm, but if he were, what, he, what he's saying in that, he, he's saying that, you know, a six-year-old can recite this verse, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, and it's sweet, and it's a very simple, innocent faith, and it's, and it's no less true when a six-year-old recites it. But when an 86-year-old, an 86-year-old, who suffered through some of the deepest valleys of life, along maybe with some of the mountains too, when they say, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, it's different. It's different, isn't it? It doesn't, it's not like it changes the truth of this verse. Its declaration is still simple, but it's a simplicity that has been arrived at through all of the complexities of life. You see, I think it's important when we come across a verse like this, I think it's important to just say it, to just state up front how impossibly unrealistic it seems to say, with, it seems to, to, to be able to say with any degree of honesty and credibility that the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, I shall not want. It feels like maybe when David says this that it is just rhetorical flourish, that he's just caught up in the moment when he says this. And the reason I say that it seems so unrealistic is because even before we entered into this new reality in which we are living, I would have had a hard time before all of this saying, I lack nothing. How about you? How about you? But certainly these days, in this new reality, there are a lot of things that I could name that we lack. Like, like certainty, for instance. We lack certainty right now about the length of time that we'll be living like this, what, it, what life will look like on the other side of this. We, we lack certainty. We, we also lack a cure for the coronavirus. We lack the physical presence right now of our friends. I mean, I'm incredibly grateful for the digital age in which we live and the fact that we can talk to one another and even see one another on a, on a screen as we talk about, as we talk with one another. But a digital presence can't substitute for physical presence. Some of us lack jobs. Some of us lack health. Our hospitals lack PPE and, and ventilators. Some of us lack anyone to, to do all of this. Some of us lack anyone to shelter in place with. Some of us are completely isolated from the outside world. How could we really say with any degree of sincerity that we lack nothing or that we shall not one. How could David have said something like that? I think the best way for us to wrestle through that statement, I lack nothing, is to do so from the emotional space that many of us are in these days. See, I think that in the midst of any crisis, a crisis like this one, there are three instinctive reactions that we have. Number one, it feels like everything is out of control. Does it feel like that to you? Number two, it feels like, it feels like no, one, no one cares. I'm in, this, I'm in this alone. No one cares what I'm going through. And number three, I think, it's, I, think, I think we feel like every possible outcome is bad. It's easy to get caught up in that kind of thing. Every possible outcome is bad. And it's fascinating to me how this first verse of this psalm addresses each one of those instinctive reactions to crisis. Let's look at them. Let's, let's start with the first one. Is it really true that everything is out of control? Is that really true? 
I want you to notice that David starts this psalm in the same way that he ends it. He starts it with the Lord, and then he ends it with the Lord. He says, the Lord is my shepherd. That's the beginning of verse 1. And the very end of it, he says, I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And everything in this psalm, every scenario that David describes, the sweet, like the green pastures and the quiet waters, as well as the bitter, like the darkest valley and the table surrounded by his enemies, every scenario in this psalm is bracketed, if you will, by the Lord. Nothing that happens to us falls outside of the providence and the sovereignty of God. Nature is not sovereign. Satan is not sovereign. Sinful man is not sovereign. The coronavirus sure isn't sovereign. God is sovereign, David saying. He is all-powerful, which means that unequivocally, it is not true that everything is out of control. It feels out of control. This crisis caught you and me by surprise, but it didn't catch God by surprise. In fact, far from being out of control, God has a purpose for this crisis and for every crisis. He has a purpose for this crisis, and He has a purpose for every crisis. God not only comprehends the coronavirus, but He has purposes for it. Make, you know, make no mistake, I, I'm not suggesting that, that God caused this crisis or any other crisis. But he is powerful enough to use it for his purposes. Nothing in life, not the sweet, not the bitter, nothing in life just happens. God does nothing and permits nothing without having a purpose in which we can trust. You know, when, when, things, when things begin to feel out of control for me, I often go back to a particular moment in history that is recorded in the, in the book of Isaiah. I think what happens there is what David is trying to get across here. Try to imagine the scenario with me for a moment. Judah has been ruled over by a good king for 52 years. This king's name was Uzziah. That's 52 years of political stability. The economy had been rolling for 52 years. Stock markets were soaring. 52 years of, of a strong national defense, 52 years of peace, 52 years of normal, if you will, where, you know, you wake up every morning and you know who's running the kingdom and you basically know what to expect. But imagine one morning in the midst of your morning routines, you glance at your iPad, you read the paper, and it says, the headlines say, the king is dead. And you turn on the TV and news stations are interrupting regular programming, telling you that the, that the king is dead. The, the scrolls underneath the talking heads are telling you that the bottom has fallen out of the stock market. People are crying. There's, there's chaos. There's, there's panic all around you. Imagine that scenario. Well, in the midst of all of that, God gives the prophet Isaiah a vision. He kind of pulls back the curtain that divides time and, and eternity, and he, and he shows him what's going on behind the curtain. And here's what Isaiah writes. In the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, high and exalted, seated on a throne. In other words, even in the midst of all of this unexpected chaos, God was still on his throne, no panic. 
No one in God's throne room scurrying around trying to figure out what to do. No one furiously scribbling notes for the next press conference. No out-of-breath staffers running into God's presence announcing the death of the king. God, seated on a throne, in as much control as he was the moment before Uzziah died. You know, here's what Isaiah would write today. He'd write, in the spring of 2020, when the coronavirus plagued the land, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne. God isn't rattled. He's not stricken. He's not surprised by this. He's not shaken by the coronavirus. Everything is under his control. He's working out his purposes through this crisis. It is not true that everything is out of control. God is in control. The Lord, David says, Yahweh is my shepherd. Now that answers, that answers one question. But you might be asking, well, okay, that's fine, but what, what good is some distant, remote, far-off God who's in control, but he doesn't really care about what I'm going through? And you know, that's, the, that's, that's what we said a moment ago. It's the second instinctive response when crisis hits, to think, well, no one cares. I'm, I'm in this all alone. And I mentioned just a moment ago, I mentioned this last week as well, that, uh, that the word that's translated uh, the Lord in uh, verse 1 and in verse 6, for that matter, is the Hebrew word Yahweh. And as I said uh, last week, David could have chosen from a number of different names of God used in the Old Testament, but he intentionally chooses this name, Yahweh. He does it for a reason, because it is the name by which God revealed himself to Moses when he was sending Moses to Pharaoh. Now again, we talked about this some last week. Moses wanted no part of going to Pharaoh. He was, and he was like, no way, no how, uh, not me. But God keeps pushing Moses, and Moses finally gets to the point that he asks God, who should I tell him is sending me? And it is this name. It is this name that David uses here in verse 1 and at the end of verse 6, that he brackets all of this with. It's this name that God answers with, Yahweh. And then when, when God answers Moses, he says, he says to Moses, because he's using this name Yahweh, he says to Moses, go tell the leaders of Israel, and here's what he says to them. He says, I've watched over you, and I have seen what has been done to you in Egypt, and I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt. And so when David says that the Lord is my shepherd, what he's affirming here is that the transcendent, all-powerful, majestic creator of the universe in all of his enormity, in all of his bigness, knows and cares about David personally. And you see, the reason that God wanted this name used in the 23rd Psalm was to reassure troubled souls throughout history that if you're in relationship with him, he knows and he cares. It's not true at all that no one cares. God is not only transcendent, but he's also personal. And he knows you. And he knows every single one of the hairs on your head. He knows your thoughts. He knows your dreams. He knows your hopes. He knows your fears. He knows your needs right now in the middle of this crisis. He knows your suffering. He knows your discouragement. He knows your loneliness. 
and he is with you, Yahweh. It's a very personal word that described the personal commitment that God makes to each one of us. Think about the significance of that. The creator of the universe, the one who hung the stars in the sky and who holds the entire universe together, knows you, cares about every single one of your needs. That's what David does in this psalm. He says, Yahweh, the bigness, the enormity of God, Yahweh is my shepherd. He knows me personally, and he cares. It's not true that no one cares. not true that everything's out of control. And it's not true that no one cares. Now you might say, well, okay, that answers two of my questions. I get it. God's in control. God cares. But you might ask, well, what, what good is a God who is in control and cares but isn't willing to do anything about it? And you see, that's the third instinctive response in a crisis that we talked about a moment ago. This idea that every possible outcome is bad. Is that true? Is it, is it really true that every possible outcome in this crisis is bad? Because I, I think it's very easy to catastrophize in the middle of any crisis. This crisis, for sure, but any crisis, really. You know, you know, you know what I mean by catastrophize. It's, it's to think of, of, of the worst possible outcome and to, to be certain that that's what's going to happen. Or maybe, maybe you find yourself right now caught up in an obsessive downward spiral of what if. Like, what if I get the coronavirus? What if my mom or dad get it? What if my kids get it? What if, what if, what if we go into a recession? Or what if we go into a depression? What if, we, what if we have to do this shelter-in-place thing beyond April 30th? What if I don't get the virus now, but I get it later? Does that sound familiar to you, that what if thing? The problem with our imagination in times of a crisis like this is that what we tend to do is imagine a future without the grace of God in it. In other words, without God's presence in it, without God's resources, without God's power in the middle of it. Our imagination can be, can be sort of like a, a bleak video game where I'm the avatar and there are all these terrible things happening around me and it's just me alone against all of these terrible enemies and, and, the, and the worst thing possible is going to happen. David says, the Lord is my shepherd. He chooses the metaphor of the shepherd because, well, he chooses it in part because uh, sheep herding was something that he knew well. He was a, he was a shepherd growing up as a kid. But it's also fascinating that Jesus picks this metaphor up in the New Testament and he refers to himself as the shepherd, as the good shepherd, he says. He says in John chapter 10, he says, he says I am the good shepherd. It's like he has this psalm in mind. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. The hired hand is not the shepherd and does not own the sheep. So when he sees the wolf coming, he abandons the sheep and he, and he runs away. Then the wolf attacks the flock and scatters it. The man runs away because he's a hired hand and he cares nothing for the sheep. But he says, I am, and he says it again, he says, I am the good shepherd. I know my sheep and my sheep know me just as the Father knows me. And I know the Father, and I lay down 
my life for the sheep. And of course, Jesus did indeed lay down his life for us, didn't he? And you know, there's this passage in the New Testament also where the Apostle Paul is thinking about what Jesus did for us when he laid down his life for us on the cross. And he says in this, in this passage, he says, he says, He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? But just before that, he wrote, and he said this, he said, he said, We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. In all things God works for the good of those who love him. Really, all things? Because I think it's, I think it's very difficult to imagine how in the world something that is as terrible as this coronavirus could ever turn out for good. But you know, here's a way to think about that. I want you to imagine that on the day Jesus died on the cross, you're standing there, right there. You're watching it. You don't you don't know much about Jesus. You just see this young man. He's 33 years old. You know a little bit. You know that he fed the poor. You know he healed the sick. You know he preached the importance of loving God and loving your neighbor. You know that about Jesus. And you see him, and, and you see that he's been strung up now to die. What would you have thought? Like, like what good could you have imagined on that day, could have ever come out of this 33-year-old guy being strung up on a cross. Could you have imagined anything good? I don't think you could have. I wouldn't have. And yet, that was the greatest thing that God could have ever done for the human race. It's not true that every possible outcome is bad. God can cause even the worst things to turn out for good. And just because, you can't just because you can't imagine anything good coming out of this, just because you imagine only terrible things coming out of this, doesn't mean that God can't bring good things out of this. If he could bring good, something good out of something as tragic as the good shepherd laying his life down for us on the cross, could he not bring good out of? You see, when you, when you add all of this up, I think it's easier to see what David means when he says, the Lord is my shepherd, I lack nothing, or as in some translations, I shall not want. He's saying that the all-powerful, transcendent God, the Lord, who is in control of all things, cares about me. Yahweh is my shepherd. And he knows my needs deeply, and he cares about those needs deeply, and he is so deeply concerned about me that he, the good shepherd, would lay down his life for me, and that out of something like that, God can bring good. He says, that God is my shepherd. What, what more could I want? I lack nothing. See, I think that's what David's getting at here. What more could I want? 
when I have a shepherd, a good shepherd like that. I mean, turn things around for just a minute. Let's, let's say you could trade all the things that we talked about earlier that we lack right now, certainty, a cure, maybe a job, whatever. If you could trade all of those things in for, for a relationship with the all-powerful, transcendent, deeply personal and caring good shepherd who lays down his life for you, would you, would you make that trade? Like if it was certainty for a relationship with that God, would you make that trade? Because here's the thing. When you're walking through a crisis, like the one that we're in right now, the thing that will bring peace to your fearful heart is a leader, a shepherd that you can trust. And you know, I'm just going to say, I don't care what your politics are, that no matter where you look in the world right now, about whom can you look in political leadership now and say, I'm following that person, and no matter what happens, all things will go well for me. Who would you choose? See, David is pointing to the fact that a life surrendered to the good shepherd puts us under the leadership, under the authority of the one who has ultimate power, who cares deeply about us, who is for us and not against us, and who is the ultimate example of how God can turn tragedy into something good, a leader, a shepherd who would die for you. That's someone that you can trust. That's what you need in a crisis. That is what will bring peace to your troubled heart. And that's what David means when he says, the Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. What more could I want? It's not true that everything is out of control. It is not true that no one cares. And it is not true that every possible outcome is bad. Because the Lord is my shepherd. He can bring good out of tragedy. He cares deeply about me. And he is in control. What more could I want? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, we affirm that truth this morning that you are our shepherd and that because of that we lack nothing. There is nothing that we could have, no other shepherd. There is no certainty, there is no cure, there is, there is no job that would be worth trading in a relationship with you, the good shepherd, the all-powerful, transcendent creator who holds all of the world together, who knows and cares deeply about us and who can bring good out of tragedy. Nothing worth trading that in. Lord Jesus Christ, we thank you so much for what you've done for us on the cross. Out of the most tragic event in all of human history, God brought good for us. And so we know that even in this crisis, he can bring good out of this as well. And it's in your name, Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.